Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. We start out this week with a roundup of last month's prison disturbances as compiled by Perilous Chronicle. Confirmed by journalist Carrie Blakinger on December 31st, prisoners at the Memorial Unit in Rocheron, Texas, went on strike to protest conditions and the use of solitary confinement. Prison officials confirmed the strike saying that up to 16 prisoners were participating and one prisoner was hospitalized but recovered. The strike ended on January 14th. Supporters of the strikers have posted their written demands, which include demands to change policies of restrictive housing, visitation rules, and offerings, as well as access to basic necessities. On the evening of January 2nd, a disturbance was reported at the Maryland Reception, Diagnostic, and Classification Center in Baltimore, Maryland. According to several news outlets, several fires were started at the facility, resulting in four people being sent to area hospitals with non-life-threatening injuries and now released. 28 prisoners were treated for smoke inhalation. The fires occurred on the fifth floor of the facility where books, mattresses, clothing, and food carts were set on fire amounting to more than $50,000 in damages. The cause of the fires is unknown, or how many prisoners were involved. The Baltimore Sun cited issues related to understaffing of guards. A group of prisoners at Millhaven Institution in Ontario, Canada, launched a hunger strike on January 3rd to protest their proposed relocation within the facility due to a construction project. Prisoners were concerned that relocation would increase their risk of exposure to COVID-19. After a meeting between staff and protesters, the relocation was successfully called off. On Monday, January 3rd, 14 prisoners at Taylor Correctional Center in Perry, Florida, organized a sit-down and work strike to protest the conditions inside of the facility, including unwashed linens, assault by guards, unsanitary food, and non-working toilets. During and after the sit-down, flyers circulated with the title, This Means War, We Are Responding, that outlined the prisoners' demands. The facility went on lockdown after the sit-down. There is an active call to contact prison officials with a list of demands from the Revolutionary Intercommunal Black Panther Party, or RIBPP. Decades of mismanagement at Rikers Island Correctional Center has been exacerbated by the past few months of the COVID-19 pandemic. On January 8th, about 200 detainees in the Robert N. Daverin complex, where many young people are held, began a meal refusal protest in response to generally worsening conditions and COVID-related quarantine procedures. In interviews with the New York Times, detainees share they were not being granted access to recreational programming or the law library and that they had not been allowed outside for weeks. They said violence was rampant in the facility. An even more widespread hunger strike has been planned ahead of Joe Biden's visit to New York City on February 3rd. 
At least two dozen prisoners at the Santa Rita Jail in Dublin, California, are in hunger strike this month in response to an increase in prices at the jail's commissary. According to KTVU, prison officials claim commissary prices increased by 5% this year, but detainees track increases on standard items ranging from 21% to 68%. Commissary prices at the jail are much higher than the nearby San Francisco jail, in large part due to the 40% commission the Alameda County Sheriff's Office levies on all purchases. One detainee, Eric Rivera, told KTVU that he planned to go as hard as I can and that collective protest is their only option because prison authorities respond to nothing else. On January 27th, strikers at Santa Rita sent messages of solidarity to those on strike on Rikers Island. Quote, we stand with you because it's the same everywhere. On Wednesday, January 12th, four prisoners detained at the New Orleans Juvenile Justice Center in New Orleans, Louisiana, escaped the facility. The detainees escaped around 1.30 p.m. as one person used an access card, letting the other three people free and physically confronting a guard. The director of the center said it was experiencing staffing problems due to the pandemic. All four prisoners have been recaptured. Two prisoners were recaptured after a two-hour standoff with police. According to NOLA.com, the escape came four days after another escape attempt from the same facility. In 2019, Perilous reported on a significant disturbance at this facility where prisoners barricaded themselves in the unit in which the NOPD Special Operations Division was called in. No injuries were reported. Two disturbances were reported at the Marion County Adult Detention Center in Indianapolis, Indiana. In a video conference with the Marion County judges, Sheriff Kerry Forrestal and other county officials reported two disturbances at the detention center. The first, on January 25th, the guards received intelligence that prisoners were going to take over their cell blocks and ambush the guards. Reserves were called in to quell the takeover. 24 hours later, on January 26th, a similar disturbance happened in which prisoners alerted guards that there was someone injured in the unit. According to the video conference, when the guards arrived, it appeared that there were plans for an ambush on guards, but retreated when reserves were called in. Fox 59 alleges they have received other anonymous complaints, such as prisoners breaking plexiglass windows and suppressing sprinkler systems. These events come after prisoners were moved to the new Marion County Adult Detention Center within the Community Justice Campus on the east side of Indianapolis. Previously, detainees were held in three locations, Marion County Jail 1, Marion County Jail 2, and the City County Building. Sheriff officials claim that the new building has security glitches, that they are understaffed due to overseeing multiple locations, as well as being underfunded. Officials also admitted to disruptions in virtual court offerings, as well as a stalling in commissary. It is unknown what specifically caused the disturbances or if prisoners were charged in the events. Five teenagers between the ages of 14 and 17 escaped from a juvenile detention facility called the Echo Glen Children's Center near Snoqualmie, Washington, after overpowering staff on duty and stealing a nurse's car. The five were all housed at the facility's only maximum security unit. The escapees were able to drive through the facility's gate without difficulty because it had been smashed by a visitor about a year ago and was never replaced. As of January 31st, two of the teens remained at large. 
You can find out more at perilouschronicle.com. An organization of revolutionary Texas prisoners called Team One, alongside another prisoners group titled the TX Liberation Collective, are calling for a campaign to boycott, rally, and strike on the days approaching Juneteenth and on that day. The organizations write, in the wake of social unrest, the current U.S. White House regime, in an effort to pacify a sector of the populace, did indeed make Juneteenth a federal holiday. While Juneteenth is a celebration of the ending of slavery in the U.S., it is factual to state that slavery on this continent has to the present day gone on without cease. Instead, slavery has been transformed, and we cannot let the narrative of a now state-sanctioned holiday gloss over the fact the U.S. in general, and Texas in particular, took systemic measures to continue the arrested development of so-called minority communities. The prisoners' demands include an end to male censorship, compensation for inmate labor, an end to monopoly business practices that exploit prisoners and their families, and abolishing long-term administrative segregation. Their communique also calls for prisoners themselves to use this initiative to catalyze their own autonomous liberatory spaces, such as libraries, study groups, a prisoners' workers' union, and youth engagement programs. The communique is being spread publicly as an invitation to outside groups, including the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, anarchist Black Cross groups, revolutionary abolitionist movement chapters, and other prisoner supporters and anti-prison groups, to help spread the word to prison populations in their own states. Two years ago, the Louisiana Pardon Board recommended Gloria Williams for clemency. On Tuesday, January 25th, after 51 years in prison and a long struggle with COVID-19, Mama Glow was finally released. Williams, the longest serving female prisoner in Louisiana, earned the nickname Mama Glow behind bars, a testament to her tendency to mentor younger women. Her sister, Mary Moore, told the parole board that Williams participated in virtually every program available behind bars and hadn't had a prison disciplinary write-up in 14 years. Williams was sentenced to life in the 1971 shooting death of Budge Cutrera Sr., an Opelousas grocer killed during an armed robbery involving Williams and four co-defendants. Williams maintains that her co-defendant, who died in prison, pulled the trigger. Mama Glow's parents were sharecroppers in Church Point, where she grew up in extreme poverty and was married at 14 to a man six years older than she. They had five children. She left her husband after discovering his infidelity, then remarried to a man who brutally abused her and forced her to take drugs. While in prison for armed robbery, he demanded money for a lawyer. Williams, fearing him, took part in the robbery. More than 4,000 people are serving life sentences in Louisiana. When Williams was convicted, people serving life became parole eligible after 10 years and six months. But over the years, the state legislature eliminated prisoners' eligibility for parole, making clemency the only option. Williams escaped from prison three times, once making it to Houston, which added eight years in a Texas prison to her sentence. In 1985, she escaped again, injuring a guard, but was recaptured and convicted of simple escape. I'm elated, it's just now setting in, said her youngest son, Daryl Robertson, who was a toddler in 1971. It was like a dream at first, now we can celebrate. This week, we share a conversation between Daniel McGowan and Brian Whitener about the Certain Days calendar. 
The Certain Days Freedom for Political Prisoners calendar is a joint fundraising and educational project between outside and inside organizers in the U.S. and Canada. Its founding members, Herman Bell, Robert Seth Hayes, and David Gilbert, were welcomed home from prison in 2018 and 2021. Today, Daniel talks about the history of the calendar, the various ways it supports folks on the inside, and some of the challenges to long-term organizing. Here they are. Well, my name is Daniel McGowan, and I am a member of the Certain Days Collective. I am from Queens, New York, and I've been involved uh, since the mid-90s. I really got involved organizing in environmental and animal rights circles. And there was a prisoner from the animal rights movement back then that got a few years in prison, and that sort of introduced me to the idea of prisoner support. And so I, I wrote this person and did some fundraising for their commissary and distributed zines from them. Um, and so it was sort of like, you know, I, I only really became exposed to prisoner issues through things like that and through seeing like protests in support of Mumia Abu-Jamal or Leonard Peltier, which were, were quite large in the 90s. And then in 2000, a friend of mine, when I was living in Eugene, Oregon, was arrested for uh, the arson of three trucks in Eugene, Oregon at a dealership. And he received a 22-year, eight-month sentence. His name was Jeff Free Lures. This was in Oregon State. And I really got fully involved in prisoner sport at that point, thinking that the sentence that Free got was so bad that we really need to do something about that. And then as, as life turns out, a few years later, 2005, I was indicted myself uh, for actions taken by the Earth Liberation Front in Oregon around that time. And uh, I ended up doing seven years in federal prison. And I've been out since late 2012. So Certain Days has been around since 2001. I think we, this is our 21st calendar. And my entry into that world came as a result of organizing a sign-on letter of solidarity for the man that I just talked about, Jeff Lurs. And I was reaching out to all the different prisoner support groups that I could find at the time. And uh, I reached out to a group called Montreal ABCF to show you how old this is. I reached out to them on Friendster which, you know, many people listening will probably have to go Google to find out what the hell that was. But it was like a more primitive version of Facebook or whatever, social media, early social media. And I got the person in Montreal ABCF to sign on to the statement of solidarity. It was just like an organizing tool to generate support. And we became friends and she was telling me about this project she worked on. And yeah, I got a calendar in the mail and I was just like, wow, this is like, at the time, this was just way beyond anything that I, I thought I could be part of. You know, it's like a new activist and just like, this is pretty amazing. Um, and then through the years, you know, I would help out. I would get copies of the calendar in the mail and distribute it and sell it. You know, the calendar is a educational project, you know, in that it has tons of information about radical history, about prisons, political prisoners, but also it's a fundraiser. And so certain days is always like basically sold at a cheaper rate. Um, like, you know, if you buy 10, you can get them for $100 and then sell them for $15 each and keep the difference for your organization, your campaign, your info shop or whatever. So that's kind of how I got involved. Uh, it, just, it was a friend's project and I'm always interested in what my friends are doing. And so I got introduced to it. And then I went to prison in 2007. And I remember I wrote an article for the calendar first then about the Black Panther Party, which I believe was having some anniversary. I don't know if it was the 40th or whatnot, but it was something big. And then basically just, you know, got the copies of the calendar when I was in prison, shared it with people that I was doing time with, and then got out and joined the collective in about 2013. So I've been involved for about eight years now. What I do is often either directing 
the flow of art that comes in or just, you know, and writing some, but all the collective members are generalists. We, we write, we edit, we solicit art. None of us are artists, unfortunately, but, you know, my dealing with artists is essentially just like reach and like sending out a call for submissions and then getting, you know, over a hundred pieces of art from all the world, including prisons, and jails. And then uh, we go through a whole editorial process to decide 12 pieces, which is really difficult. That call that I mentioned that we send out is also usually has a theme. And so the articles, we try to get the articles on a particular theme. And then we, we also go looking for art that we like, like on particular topics. So we'll reach out to artists that don't know about us and, you know, send them a copy of the calendar and see, you know, if they want to submit. So the end result is essentially 12 original pieces of art, 12 original articles, all loosely centered upon a theme. The theme in 2022 is creating a new world in the shell of the old usually ends up being a very beautiful result. I mean, we have obviously the 12 pieces of art and 12 articles, but we also have this like, we front load the calendar with like a bunch of information so that in a way it's kind of like a zine, has like definitions about prison campaigning. It has a big updates page with usually a picture of a recently released prisoner. It has books we like, zines we like, websites, just a bunch of stuff like that. And then, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20 of the different days in the month have radical dates that are noted so that people that are new to the movement or just are interested in, in our history can like go through and find out like, you know, Rosa Parks was born today, or so-and-so was released from prison or whatever. That's amazing. So the calendar is at the center of what you all do. Could you talk just a little bit about the calendar as an organizing tool? Seems like, you know, because you're not only publishing art and giving info shops a way of supporting themselves, you know, and giving prisoners a way of getting their ideas and their voice and their artwork out, but you're also building relationships. And that seems like that that is also at the heart of a project that's been around for such a long time. Could you just talk about the calendar as an organizing tool? I think it's an organizing tool in the sense of like, we're building relationships with many artists and writers and people that help us, you know, like we call them shepherds, like people that help us be conduits with people that are incarcerated, you know, people that are like, are like, my friend's going to call on Tuesday and he's, we'll ask him what picture to use and things like that. And what we do is we, we obviously, we want to distribute the calendar. We want to like raise funds so that we can then give it away to different organizations. But I'll say that as an organizing tool, like the end goal is essentially distribute this beautiful calendar that like people can hang in their home and their office and like their jail cell or prison cell. But also just like, it's a radicalizing thing. I feel like it's a Trojan horse. It looks like just a plain old wall calendar, but yet it's chock full of radical history and radical dates. And putting together the calendar essentially like puts us in contact with so many people, both inside and out, that we're able to try to amplify the voices of many of the people that write for us. And so like, we always try to get a lot of people that are incarcerated to submit and we publish their art. And then, you know, when things are happening with these people, we try to amplify like what's going on. So for instance, there is uh, an artist that in this year, his name is Comrade Z. His like state name is Julio Zaniga, and he's a Texas state prisoner that drew a really amazing piece of art of Lucy Parsons. And so, you know, in dealing with, you know, Comrade Z, we find out that like Texas state prisons, a particular prison that he's at, it's like basically has a really major issue with the water. And they're just like, you know, a serious kind of like toxic prison situation, right? And so trying to amplify the different things that are going on as an organizing tool or, you know, promoting the parole campaigns of the people that help put out the counter. So just to back up, our collective was started by three maximum security prisoners in New York State, um, a man named David Gilbert. Robert Seth Hayes and Herman Bell. Now, the great thing and also the challenging thing is that all three of those people were released from prison in the last three years, uh, which is exciting because like 
essentially they were doing life sentences and through like a lot of like advocacy, their own advocacy and just pushing the parole board in a, in a better direction and pushing the governor to commute David's sentence, all three of those people have been released. And unfortunately, Robert Seth Hayes died two years ago. So we always try to have like inside voices. And so we added another collective member. His name is Zanachli. His state name's Alvaro Hernandez, and he's a Texas state prisoner. During the period of time that there was like a large crop of like former Black Panthers that were in New York state prisons, like we used our social media and our calendar project as a way to amplify their voices and to help them, you know, basically help them get free. We pretty much allow like people to join at like a level in which they can like contribute, right? They don't have to like take it all on. So like, you know, when we have to pay the printer and when we're trying to figure out how to get calendars over the border, like, that's a particular like headache that we don't, we don't ask new members to deal with. We, ha- we welcome people on the collective uh, that we have political affinity and trust with, and we help them. Like They can help with edit or distribution of the calendar, social media, stuff like that. And then they get acclimated and they can do more. It's tough. I mean, we, we've been, like I said, like three of our former members have gotten out of prison. We have now one inside member. We've asked a number of people on the inside. And unfortunately, it's just like a lot of people have just situations going on that like either it wouldn't help them to be a member of our collective. They have communication restrictions. They are concerned about what's going on in their family. I mean, these are all just actually, like, I don't want to say excuses, but these are reasons that people have said they couldn't participate. You know, the censorship in the mail, or just like communication restrictions being cut off, things like that. So we are always looking to grow our collective, but it is a challenge. We put out two calendars now during the pandemic. It should be said that we have two members in Canada and two members in the United States. Back in the day, the way it used to work is like at the end of the, the year, people would get together like either in Canada or in the U.S. and have like a full session about like how the year went. That has been like virtual for the last couple of years. Um, not just COVID, but also the fact that like I'm a, I'm a convicted felon. I can't even go to Canada. So like that has always been an issue since I got out. And when I originally got out, I was on probation. So I wasn't able to even leave the state. So um, we have a lot of like obstacles and we're at like a particular turning point in our project. Like you know, is this going to continue going on for the next 20 years or, or not, you know? And so, you know, it's cool. It's like nothing needs to be forever, but I do, you know, we do want to continue putting it out. You hit on something that I also kind of wanted to ask about, which is something that's interesting about the project is that it does go across national borders. Could you say just a little bit about how you see the project fitting into the ever-changing landscape of prison organizing? I'm not really sure. Um, it's really interesting. I mean, uh, and I don't know if this is because of the the role of the United States and how it incarcerates people, but like, first and foremost, our project was about political prisoners, not as a way of exceptionalizing them as the only people worthy of support, but as a way of amplifying their voices and trying to help free them from like insane sentences. So even like the Canadians that have been involved in the project, the Canadian prison system is just a different animal than the United States one. And so like a lot of work that happens, you know, a lot of the focus in this calendar are on U.S. held political prisoners. And, you know, to be mindful, like that is a group of people that is shrinking pretty dramatically. You know, as much as it's, it is shrinking, there's also like new people coming into the system. And so people that, for instance, involved in sabotage in the Dakota Access Pipeline, or there's a case out of Florida, a man named Daniel Baker, who was accused of making threats against right wing people online and was given three-year sentence or whatever. So there's definitely, like, obviously new people coming in. There are obviously people in prison deserve support regardless of their convictions. Things are changing, and I'm not sure, like, how that plays out. It's 12 original pieces of art and 12 original articles all on the theme this year of creating a new world in the shell of the old, which is arguably an IWW or Catholic worker sentiment. 
it, the origin of that is, is lost. But both groups have written about that concept. So we have an international group of artists. I said before, Comrade C has a really amazing drawing of Lucy Parsons. There is a man named Jesus Barraza from the Jacides Collective that has some art. Oso Blanco, an indigenous political prisoner. Pete Rayland, also from Jacides a group called Windigo Army in Canada, and a person named Carrot in Brighton, England. We have articles by Montclair Mutual Aid, Shukri Abu Baker, who's a, a Muslim prisoner that was indicted for running a charity, basically. I wrote an article about prison book programs. Um, we have David Gilbert, who is our recently released editor, wrote an article. I'm really happy about it. The cover is a beautiful, it's actually our February art right now. It's called Our Time Will Come. It's by Roger Pete, who's an artist out of Portland, Oregon, also associated with Just Seeds. And it's a, a beautiful, like bright image of a, of a cicada, which I, or a cicada, depending on where you live. So I'm pretty happy about it. I've referenced it a few times that the calendar is a fundraiser. We have kind of standing projects that we give to every year. Um, and those include Release Aging People in Prison, which is a, an organization in, in New York City that fights for like an end to the punishment paradigm, basically getting the parole board to meaningfully release people from prison in ways that they haven't and pushes the governor to grant clemency and things like that. Last year, we gave to a Canadian group called Barton Prisoner Solidarity. They're based in Hamilton, Ontario. We gave to the Tucson Anti-Repression Crew, Prison Health News out of Philadelphia, Austin, Texas, ABC, Solidarity Across Borders, also in Canada, Buffalo Bookstore Bars, which is a small prison books program, and Mongoose Distro, which is based out of Brooklyn, which publishes writings by anarchist prisoners. Um, and also, they have one of the best taglines ever, and it comes from a rejection slip in a Texas state prison. It's Mongoose Distro's tagline is, contains material solely for the purpose of achieving breakdown of prison through disruption. So it's always nice to get that kind of compliment from your enemies, I suppose. I love that. We really rely on a lot of online ordering, as that has become pretty normalized these days. So our main distributor is our friends in Buffalo, Burning Books. Their website is burningbooks.com. And you can get free shipping on orders over $35. And there's bulk discounts available. We sell copies to people in prison for $8. And that includes postage. And we send those out for people. So all that information is on our website, certaindays.org. And we're also on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at Certain Days or Certain Days Calendar. It's pretty easy to find us, I'd say. People can email us if you have ideas for who we should give our money to. We always ask, recommend someone other than yourself. If you have a particular interest or you have art that you want to submit to the calendar, we'll be putting our call for submissions out in the next couple of months. We're like a small group. like So it's even hard. Like the fact that we send about 430 calendars into prisons this year, and that feels so paltry. And even though we know that like each person shares it with multiple people, it still just feels so, so tiny. You know, we get groups like, anarchist black cross and jericho and groups like that to sponsor copies so sometimes like abc groups will like donate like 150 dollars and we'll use that towards like the 8r and then we just basically send to people right off our list um, and we get family members write us sometimes people send us checks you know when they send us checks from the inside we appreciate it but we're always like you know like making eight dollars in a prison any prison job is tough to the extent that we get these sponsorships we try to send people free calendars you know we are definitely in the consultation phase where we're figuring out where we're giving our proceeds. So if anyone has any ideas, you can always feel free to email us. We don't want to like be like the Girl Scouts giving money to the Red Cross, right? Like we want to like give to people that when they get the check, they're like, oh, wow, look what we got, you know, like that kind of vibe where like $500 will make a huge difference to a group. I think the calendar is a really beautiful project and we really want more people to see it. Thanks to Daniel and Brian. 
You can find out more about the project, including where to purchase it, at certaindays.org. Daniel mentioned that their collective welcomes help of all experience levels. Their website also includes how to purchase this calendar for someone on the inside, as well as a short video on how to write to political prisoners. Again, that website is certaindays.org. This has been KiteLine. Thank you to everyone who contributed to the show. And if you want to financially support our work, you can become a supporter at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at kitelineradio.org. After a brief hiatus, we're happy to report that our prisoner call-in phone line is back. Folks on the inside or their outside friends and supporters can call 765-343-6236 to record a message to be played on the air. Please share this number widely and we'll try to answer and air all messages possible. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. 